Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-track so you can mix along. You also get access to Mixlab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Joey, welcome. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> welcome back, I guess. it's I, I don't hey. even know. Yeah, I don't know how to greet you because uh, you started this podcast with me, so it's like, Hi. Welcome home. <laughs> well, you know, you know what they say: you can't uh, come back unless you go away. That's true. It's <laughs> you true. gotta go away sometimes. <laughs> if he really loves you, set him go. Type of thing. Well, it's like I feel like every you know three, four, five years, you hear about like some sort of kiss tour again. You know, like yeah, <laughs> it's like the final tour. <laughs> well, here, well, okay, well then, yeah, like I think Ozzy had the no more tours thing at least. Four different times. Like I, I remember in high school, Ozzy. I remember him saying, like in '95, that it was his last tour. And <laughs> that last tour, <laughs> that last tour happened so many times. So yeah, but I don't know. We, we, you know, we, we. Uh, the disappearance is natural because I think a lot of times the episodes used to have way too many people on them. That was my opinion. I agree. Yeah. So, but it's, it's a nicer to have more tight knit conversations, I think. Well, I think that like everything needs to evolve the way it's going to evolve naturally when it, especially when it comes to content, right? You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, or it's just going to get old. And I think that the, what we did like a hundred or 120 episodes in the original format with the three of us, which is a hell of a lot of episodes. Um, and I kind of feel like to a degree it ran its course. Um, and I know we all started getting kind of bored. Uh, I was getting bored. I know you guys were getting bored. And so the format had to change a little bit. So, and then I went on for a while doing that format, but kind of on my own, but it started driving me nuts to where I actually thought of just not doing the podcast anymore. And then I was like, no, why don't I just make it interesting to myself? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> not, not that there was anything wrong with our original format or anything. It was great. It's just we did over 100 shows like that. So Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like... I, you could kind of relate it to production or even music. It's like there's only so many chords, and then after a certain number of chord combinations and things like that, you sort of run your course of how many different chord combinations that work together that sound good, but th that you also like them and also fit your style. So it's kind of like the same thing with the podcast. Like after a hundred or so episodes, you've heard all the stories, all the, you know, all the things that we talk about, all all of our thoughts on different parts of this industry. So it's so it makes sense, you know. But I figured I would come back on here because I know there's always there's always a demand to pick my brain to some degree. So well, it's been a while too. It's been over a year. So I know that 
lots has happened since the last time you were on. So there's plenty to talk yeah. about. You know, I'm just curious because I haven't talked to you much recently, just like personally. Do you miss production at all? I can tell you I don't at all. Well, there's times um, when it definitely comes up. For example, my wife's band is working on some music right now, and we've been flying around and working with different people. Um, and I'm sort of the armchair, or what would you call that? Yeah, the armchair producer, or the, the backseat producer, <laughs> so to speak. Backseat producer is in, they go places, and you go with them, and they're working, and you're like, well, actually... Actually, you should use actually. Actually. Use that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of the deal. But I, this is the thing that I've always preached is I really believe in the idea that there isn't one ultimate great producer in the world other than the closest person would maybe be Mutt Lang, but even him, even he's going to struggle with something something like, yeah, there would be something that he'll struggle with. So... I'm just like, yeah, like, let's work with different people. Like, definitely go find stuff, go find people that do stuff that you love or that interests you because you never know what kind of cool stuff can come out of those collaborations. At the end of the day, it's that's the greatest thing about recording is that you're capturing and, and creating a piece of art. You can change it. If, if it sounds like crap, you can go change it. So it's like, there's no harm, I think, in experimenting. And, uh, so yeah, like in those sessions, sometimes I'm kind of like, ooh, you know, it's, the spark comes in, and uh, but then you know, I just never want to do any of the work, you know, that's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> but I like talking about it. So you still kind of have a like, it's weird. I, I kind of feel the same way in a way. Um, like when we're doing nail the mix, and I'm at a session, and something sick is happening, like. You know, because I mean, we work with sick people. And so on every session, there's at least three or four moments where there's something I haven't seen before or something I've never thought of, or they just get that mixed puzzle to fit together. And it's just like, ooh, yeah. And, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, it gets the spark going. And I'm like, fuck, this is awesome. I love this. This is amazing. This is what it's all about. But then I realize what it's all about for me is doing nail the mix. I don't actually want to go home and do that, which is different. It's it's weird because I used to want to go home and do that, but I don't it doesn't translate to wow, that was sick. How do I do it? It's more just like wow, that was sick. I love that. Yeah, and I mean there's different roles. I mean for example, I enjoy watching a band play, but it doesn't mean I want to go up on stage and create that music, you know. So it's yeah, but but when you watch a band play, are you enjoying it from the standpoint of a consumer, like who's not into music other than enjoying it, or are you watching it from the perspective of Joey Sturgis, the producer? Because when I watch Nail the Mix, I'm watching it from the standpoint of me as someone who used to do this for a living, who's got like the knowledge I've got, whereas it doesn't then translate to I want to go do it. But I feel like with a band, that might be a little, it might be a little different because it's not something you used to really do, or I guess. Well, I mean, I did when I was a lot younger. Okay, then you did. <laughs> yeah, but but I would say, I don't know, I've always got like the dual 
pers- I, I have the dual perspective. It, there's very that's that's the uh, thing you can't get away from in this industry. It's like you know how audio works, you know how people make recordings, you know how live sound works. So it's like when you watch a show, you can't help but notice, oh, he's got the EQ cranked on that mic. It's just bad, or <laughs> you know, or something like that. But you're still sort of also Fucking enjoying the kill song. Kill that 4K, and, bro. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I th- I think like production is such a vast universe, and so it's cool. It's a, it's a cool thing to live within with inside of you know, like watching nail the mix and being a part of that community and playing around with like plugins and things like that. Like I feel like we all sort of relate. Um, on that level, whether you like production or not, I think you still, if you're in this community, you understand kind of the the nature of it. You know, I think there's some people who, like, for example, with racing, you know, people, there's some people who like to race the cars and there's some people who like to be the mechanic that works on the car. So there's all the different roles, you know what I mean? I've always had this feeling where when something really, really sick happened, like, and not just in recording, I've had this in other things. Like when I was playing in the band and the other guitar player was just a phenom, I wanted everyone to understand what a phenom he was, but not in a listen to our band sort of way. In a, you need to understand how sick this player is. Like, look at that technique. Like, this is insane. You don't meet people like this every day and just like share that with people so that they could understand how great it's possible to be or something. It's, and I feel like the same way with recording. Uh, I get a spark when I hear an amazing production or am around a great mix or something. Like that spark, like it excites me, but it excites this part of me that wants to share that with people not actually go and do it, which is weird. Yeah, so that's, I think that's that's what I'm talking about with the roles, is like, if everyone wanted to be a producer, but nobody wanted to talk about the methods, then yeah, it, that would suck. Or if everyone wanted to only talk about the methods, but no one wanted to do the work, that would also suck. So it's kind of like, you got to have that blend of, of roles and for anything to work in the world. Like if you think about any kind of um, activity, industry, market, whatever, those things don't work without the, the givers and the takers. And <laughs> you know what I mean? The people who have different interests within that. So that's why I always like, it's funny to me, and I don't know why we're here, but whatever. <laughs> it's funny to me when you see things on Facebook like, you have one guy who's trying to deliver some sort of value, some sort of product. There's an it's an ad or whatever, and then you have other people who are beating that person up or or discounting um, that person's role in the market. And I know a lot of people don't think of it this way, but it's like if all the hecklers won, then you wouldn't have a market. So if you like racing or you like recording, and you beat up all the people who try to make that industry or that market better then you suck like that sucks (laughs) i I agree i I think it's an interesting topic uh because i do think that it's a very vocal minority uh so just and the reason i think that is because if you look at just stats like from running a facebook group for instance because i you know, very community-minded. And so I'm into every aspect and our communities on Facebook. So 
One thing I look at a lot is the difference between the engaged and the non-engaged users. Like who who's lurking and how many people are lurking? How many people are actively involved? And while we don't have trolls in our group, um, still there's oh, a huge ratio of, or huge amount always, of people who don't actively participate. And I get it because that's me, like, For instance, back in the 90s, I would listen to talk radio on the way to school, but I would never call in. Fuck that. I would never call in. And along the lines, there's been several groups I've been a part of on Facebook or in forums over the years, whatever, where I would just go in and read, but I wouldn't want to really get my hands dirty and and get involved uh, personally with any of it. And I've noticed that there's a lot of people like that, um, that there's always this vocal minority. And I do think it's a minority of people who are just the loudest and who have this drive, this negative drive, like this negativity in them in that moment is so strong that they got to share it. And it makes it seem like there's a lot more of them than there really are because emotionally, I think we see seven shitty comments or 10 shitty comments. And it's like, wow. People hate this, but it's like, well... But there's like another thousand people who just aren't saying anything. Yeah, there's a bunch of people like me who just see the ad and either click on it or don't, but aren't like, oh, this motherfucker. (laughs) I'm going to take him down. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think everyone has to understand that, but it's that's the problem with, I guess, to some degree, marketing because... The other consumers that aren't saying anything could be potentially influenced by the person that is the loudest. So you're going into it, you know, just with face value. You're like you're looking at the ad and you're seeing the response below. And uh, I mean, we're all guilty of it. I there's ads that I see all the time, and the very first thing I do is I go to that comment section because I want to know is there somebody in there that actually tried this product and likes it, or is there somebody who actually tried this product and says. No, this thing sucks. Like. So I go, I go and I look, but it, I take it with a grain of salt. And same, same. The thing is that uh, I, I believe I heard Gary V talking about this once recently about how Yelp, for instance, was doing great. I mean, it's still doing all right, but it was doing a lot better before people figured out that there were fake reviews on there, and so people as a whole, started to pay less attention to Yelp than before because they just don't trust it as much. And I think that the public trusts reviews less. Same thing with Amazon reviews. There's been big stories about that and big deals made out of the fake reviews. And so you do have to take it with a grain of salt. And I think a good number of people Obviously, not everybody, but a good number of people do take it with a grain of salt because you never know these days if it's, you know, the founder's girlfriend posting or the founder's girlfriend's cousin posting that they bought it and they think it's amazing, or one person bought a product and it didn't work for them because. They didn't even use it, <laughs> or or it's like a workout program and they used it once or twice. You know, and then and then made a they made a conclusion yeah. that it's a scam or or something, or they bought one of our products, a URM, and you know it's a twelve week course 
with it's a like speed mixing. It's like a twelve week course where you have to do every single bit of it, or you're going to get way diminished results. And we tell you that the whole time. You have to do every bit of this the way we prescribe it. Then you'll get the results, and they don't do that. And they're like, it doesn't work. It's like, well, you don't work. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, really, I do believe that you're right that it does influence people is purchasing to a degree, but I do think that people pay less attention to that than they used to. I think the public's becoming wiser to it, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. So the important lesson, or I guess point here, is if you love something, like you love recording, whatever, you should try and find some institution or at least service company, product, brand, whatever, that's trying to improve that and, and support them. Because if you don't do that, there's other people that aren't doing it too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like the thing where if no one ever um, had a urge to teach another person how to speak or teach another person a language, then nobody would, we wouldn't have a language. No one would be talking. So it takes a, a you know, a person who wants to fulfill that role uh, and then all the the demand that comes from all the people that want, that need people that fulfill that role. And so that's, I think, in a loose way, you know, going back to where we, we started with the product, you know, do you miss production? Yes and no. And the big answer really, I think, is all about fulfillment. And I think there's way more fulfillment um, in, in my, from my perspective, in being that role, providing that role of can we, progress this? Can we make this easier? It's the same thing with the software and the plugins and make all those tools to say, hey, maybe there's an easier way that we can approach this problem within the production process or whatever. And and maybe we can solve this problem and make things better. I get so much more out of that than I did from making a song. But the one thing I'll say that I miss from making songs is there's definitely an emotional element there's an emotional impact that comes along with creating a uh, such a moving piece of art, you know, such as some some kind of special song that you were a part of that you helped bring to life. And sometimes that can bring tears. Sometimes that can, you know, make you feel adrenaline. Those are things that I'm not really sure you can get from being the role that we're playing in this in this industry. You know, being in nail the mix. Um, I know there's other things like if you're a coach of a football team and you guys win like the, you know, whatever it is, the Super Bowl, there's going to be a rush. There's going to be an emotional thing there. But I don't know where those come in with uh, what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I've played shows with like 25,000 people in the crowd where you get them all chanting at once. And it's just like, wow, (laughs) that's powerful. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get that. But that's okay, because I've already experienced it. And since I have already experienced it, I don't need to keep re-experiencing it. Um, But I want to key in on two things you said. So first of all, I totally agree with you about people who do have something good to say should say it on the internet. Because I, I think that people are going about cleaning up the internet the wrong way. Um, Too many people are focused on taking things away, like banning people or blocking or basically taking away. Rather than that, you should add good stuff. Um, Because... Oh, I like that. uh, 
add good stuff. That's a, a lot easier. And with the way that the internet works anyways, is that it lasts forever if you want it to, but really shit gets forgotten really, really fast. And so the same amount of effort you would spend on getting something taken down or whatever, you could put into creating something very, very compelling that helps your point of view. Whether that point of view is just this person that I got off of Handy who came and cleaned my house did an amazing job and takes pride in their work and I would hire them anytime and you should hire them too. Like whether it's that or, um, you know, like some long blog about some political or health issue or something that really means a lot to you. I think that you're going to do more good in the world uh, by bringing in something positive than spending your energy trying to remove something negative. Obviously, there's you know there's limits to that. There are there are some things that need to be removed, but I do think that the internet would be a better place is those if the lurkers would just put in their two cents because they're usually going to be positive. I totally agree with you on that. And then the other thing about what you said is that I really do think that I agree with you also about the different roles. And to people on the outside, I think there's a misunderstanding about these roles. Like I think that people think that every guitar tech wants to be a rock star or something, or every engineer wants to be the producer or for instance um or every every uh every gear builder is only doing that because they're not mixing for a living or us doing URM is cuz cuz we can't <laughs> though this is not true at all because we can't do recording for a living. I have heard that said which is really really funny. Um a funny thing to say about us of all people. But I don't see things that way. I know a lot of people who are professional luthiers uh, who that's their calling in life. Yeah, right. like people who build gear, that's, uh, that's their calling. So that's, to me, it's, it's kind of the same thing as like going back to the race car analogy. You got to have one guy who's good at racing and you got to have one guy who's the mechanic who works on the engine and stuff like that. And I don't think... I mean, there's definitely people who do both, but they're not. There's there's no way you could be the best in both. So yeah, once again, it takes roles, and so this is the one of the hardest things that uh, to get bands and labels and managers to understand. Which is interesting because I think they should understand it already, since you know the manager knows he has a role. <laughs> He's not the guy singing a song on stage, <laughs> but. Uh, I used to get pushback uh, when I would want to do an album and I'd be like, we're going to have this guy do the guitars and this guy do this and I'm the producer and blah, blah, blah. I can remember some freak out moments, you know, when people would be like, uh, or not people, sorry, but the powers that be would uh, get angry and be like, what the hell? Why aren't you there? And like, because they're recording guitars. It's like yelling at the, the guy, why aren't you driving your car? It's like, well, because the motor's messed up. <laughs> you know, like it's with the guy that's good with the motors. Like he's good at that. So let's let him do it and then we'll continue. So I definitely fought with that. And I kind of got sick of the whole thing where it's just nobody understood what was going on in my brain. But I think at the same time, maybe I didn't have the 
I wasn't good at expressing what was going on in my brain. Do you think you might have been subconsciously getting over it? Not maybe not getting over it, but subconsciously ready to move on. Uh, because I can tell you that when. I was subconsciously ready to move on before I totally understood I was ready to move on. And this happened both on the band and in production when like something inside me kind of clicked where starting to go towards I need something new in my life. Um, I didn't care as much about, I guess, finessing my point of view. Like I, I just I didn't care the way I used to about that part, and so with these conflicts um, that you're describing, like not being trusted or you know people who aren't experts trying to do your job for you, it would actually start to rub me the wrong way a lot more than before, and it would affect me a lot more. Whereas before, when my head was totally in the game, I would just deal with that stuff like it was no big deal. So I'm curious. Do you think maybe you were already checked out or on the, in the process of checking out? Yeah, and I think also um, when you deal with a certain type of conflict repetitively, you d- you definitely are searching for a way to combat that conflict, uh, r- resolve the conflict, whatever, right? And then you try this, you try that, you try that, and it keeps happening. I think you just sort of get sick of it, and it's like, I don't really know how to fix this <laughs> other than just get away from it. So uh, that was definitely part of it for sure. Well, the thing is that any industry is going to have its, you know, its bullshit. I think that grass is definitely always greener. If you just talk to some people who work in any other field, like I have a friend who's a lawyer and uh, works at a successful firm, and you should hear the shit this guy has to deal with. I mean, and he makes a ton of money and, you know, has has the quote-unquote life. The amount of shit that this guy has to deal with is unbelievable. But unlike most lawyers, he loves what he does. And uh, so he doesn't care. Like, it doesn't really bother him that much to have to deal with that stuff. He just sees that as part of the gig. Like these types of conflicts are part of the job description. And so dealing with it is part of the job description and I'm perfectly okay with that. But I feel like if he didn't like it, I also know some people by contrast who have good jobs who don't like their job or wish they were doing something else or are over it. Like maybe they liked it for a while, but it's been 15 years and they're over it. And then those con- the the shit that comes with the job, part of the job description, like whatever the bullshit is from their profession, it really starts to grind them a lot more, and they have a much harder time finding solutions for it because they're not hundred percent committed. You know what I mean? Like, ha- like even if it's just fifteen percent, fifteen percent of their brain is. Uh, already on to the next thing. And so that 15% of energy they could have spent on conflict resolution is now gone. And it just makes it harder and harder and harder. That's what happened to me, at least, I think. Sounds like that's what happened to you a bit, too. Yeah, definitely a little bit. I mean, I think the other part of it uh, that I often talk about, too, is underutilization of my skill set. Just, you know, sitting in a room with five dudes and trying to come up with some chords wasn't exhilarating 
on a brain power level for me. Yeah, dude, you're capable of so much. And this is not in any way, <sighs> shape, or form a dog on producers because God bless you guys, especially the really good ones is such a amazing amount of skills involved with that. But you, I know that you have a bunch of other skills outside of production um, and a lot of interests outside of production. You always have. And just abilities with things that, yeah, wouldn't even be touched upon in the production process. Exactly, yeah. It's just meant to be because it organically started happening. I mean, I would literally drive to the studio, uh, listen to a few tracks that they worked on, and be like, you need to change you know, these 12 things. So basically did my job, jump back in my car, drive back to my house because I had a separation between the studio and my living space. Finally, <laughs> I got to a point. And then, uh, and then jump into my computer and, and start working on like software or like my website or something, you know. So it just, it just happened naturally. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's time that if you were 100% into the production world, like, still 100% there as a producer, that time would probably could or could have gone towards things like dealing with this one asshole or you know, any, right, of, the, any, yeah. <laughs> any of the stuff or not even that or just thinking about different things to do to make it not just awesome but really, really awesome because um, it's what you're thinking about all day, every day, but instead you're coming home or going to the other room and your mind's on the next step, this plugin you have an idea for that that might change things for your life. This weird little plugin called gain reduction. <laughs> Did that come about when you were working on a production? Like uh, I, I don't mean like so we've talked about the actual what the plugin does and all that stuff. Like I don't want to get into that. I wanna what I'm curious about more so is uh when you knew you wanted to make a plugin, what else were you doing at the time? And did that, what we've been talking about, start happening? Did you start to get distracted from what you were doing or just little by little less and less interested? And then this gain reduction plugin is just like becoming more and more of where you found your brain going. Yeah. So, um, I was definitely pretty busy in the studio at the time, but I had a pretty big team. I had uh, basically two full-time engineers in-house and um, a couple of people, uh, actually, I want to say two other people remote. So I had four people plus me, so five, team of five. So two full-time in-house engineers working around the clock, recording bass, guitars, and vocals. Another engineer working full-time around the clock, editing drums. And another, our lovely friend Jeff Dune, or Dunn. Is it Dunn? I yeah, think Jeff so. Dunn. <laughs> it's funny how you see people's names online for like years and you're not sure how to say them. And then another guy that was uh, editing, uh, he was basically doing pitch editing. But like with a long-winded version, you know, the approach to how we did production was very microscope. Um, so like I needed someone to help me edit because it was just so mm -hmm. many tracks. Like every single vocal was doubled, if not tripled. Every single harmony doubled or something. So a lot of editing. And I don't know if we ever had one of those, one of my tracks that were like that. No, nailed and mix. I would love to. Yeah, someday. Yeah, while we're young, bro. <laughs> uh, 
I can't remember how to mix some of the songs anymore. I but. mean, that, that's okay. You know, a lot of the dudes who have come on are bringing on stuff from 10 years ago that, I, right. I mean, I just went through that this month with uh, Nordstrom. Like, he opened up that Bring Me the Horizon session. It was like, dude, uh, none of these plugins work. Are you sure you want me to do this? And my answer was yes. <laughs> we want you to do this because yeah, we... I, we kind of don't just, care how you used to mix it. We want to see what you do now anyways. Yeah, what's the, like, that's the one thing, a little side tangent, one of the uh, things I always say that differentiates Nail the Mix from anything else in terms of learning how to get into audio is that we provide the, like, you get inside the mind of whoever it is. And I don't, I haven't seen that anywhere else. I haven't seen any educational platform that allows you to get inside the mindset but anyway, um, back to the story, I was essentially underutilized in a heavy way because a lot of what was going on in those records and those recording processes was that people just, they were unprepared. So they would come in, we'd have you know five or six finished songs, but maybe they'd be missing vocal parts. And so I'm under the school of thought that like, you want me to come in here and produce this song, but you don't even know what you're going to say. Like, so what do you want me to do? I mean, I guess I can kind of tell you what to say, but I'm not your therapist, and I don't know what you've been through. And so, and I know some producers are good at that. Like, Ross Robinson comes to mind. But that's not me. Like, I'm more of a, not necessarily an organizer, but, like, I take thoughts that are almost good. Like, they're, they're like, 80% good, and I make them 120% good. Yeah, you help them good. become fully formed. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of where it kind of, it kind of got to that thing where it's like, I needed to be doing something. I'm just sitting around because I'm waiting on this guy to finish his guitar riff, and I'm waiting on this guy to finish his lyrics. I'm waiting on this guy to finish the song, like writing the songs and whatever. So there was just a lot of empty space. And so that empty space naturally became, what what else can I do? And uh, there was a demand online, you know? People wanted to know how I got my vocal sounds. They wanted to know how... I got my guitar sounds. And so I started to share that with people. I can remember the uh, the, the Pod Farm preset t- uh, mm-hmm. tone store or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I remember that. And uh, yeah, and so that was fun. But then I think that it's kind of like um, the, the thing that we talk about sometimes a feature creep. Um, it's like you'll have an idea, but then that leads to a new idea and then another idea. And then sooner or later, you're you're climbing a really big ladder. So it's like I started with drum samples and then I went into presets and then that was like, what if I could do a plugin? So I started playing around with that and then it just got about, you know, got out of hand and went down a rabbit hole. But that's essentially how it came about is that I was literally just bored. My job was so easy for me and there was no challenge. I was being underutilized and I needed to scratch a creative itch that wasn't being scratched otherwise. Let's talk about demand for a second. I'm curious how you knew there was a demand because I feel like I also know when when there is one or sometimes, I mean, there I've been wrong about certain things, but I've been pretty right about certain things too. And I I knew, for instance, that I was making a really good calculated risk quitting production before URM was making any money at all. Um, it was 
like I had about as close to 100% confidence that there was a demand and that the market just didn't know that there was a market for it, (laughs) Uh, that they just didn't know how bad they wanted what we were about to do. And I was just sure of it. And it was based on a bunch of different things. It was like not something that I did in, in some algorithm or some technical analysis or anything like that. It was just a bunch of different things that I thought about that I had noticed. Like my creative lives do really, really, really well. Whenever I post about this and this and that, it does really, really, really well. The creative lives could be way, way better if we did this and this and this and this. This other thing I'm doing has done this well, considering this much effort went into it. It just, it was all these different things put together that kind of form a picture of, I think that this is a smart move. How do you, do you know there was a demand for the plugins? Like what, uh, what was your evidence? Maybe, well, there's a, there's evidence on different levels. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting to think about this because the initial demand or interest came from just conversations online, Facebook groups, Twitter, you know, people replying to me on Twitter or DMing me or whatever. Um, And so just people asking those questions and showing their, you know, their, their people showing their curiosity, I think kind of gave me an inkling, like maybe I should you know, do something about this, like thinking back to that time and thinking back to, you know, two or three people hitting me up and asking me a question about something that would drive me to create a product. And what's interesting about that is if I tried to do that today, it would be chaos. What do you mean by chaos? Like I'll post about something. I'm trying to think of, think of a specific example, but let's just say I post, uh, to, you know, Tone Forge Minutes and, and then you get you know, seven different comments like, I think you should do this with it, and I think you should change this, and I think you should do that. If I went with every single suggestion of what people wanted me to do with my software, it doesn't mean it would be the right thing to do, if that makes any sense. I think I have a theory on why. So back in the day, when you're creating something that didn't exist yet at all, um, the ideas were much more big picture, I think. And less mm-hmm. about, well, I really think that when you re-release Toneforge Menace, I need this and this kind of pedal on it because that's what I prefer. Like I think that a lot of these comments now are people's very, uh, very specific personal preferences. And it's because these products have been around for a while now um, that people feel like everything should be personalized to them. And that would be the next step forward. Whereas if you're creating these products kind of for the first time ever, um, I think you're coming from a much more neutral, but also impersonal place with with them. Like they're just talking about problems they have in production, not related to a particular plugin, just problems they have in production. And then you take you take those posts and you're like, hmm, I can create something that will solve that problem. As opposed to, I'm going to update this thing that already exists, that you already own. And then they're like, well, I want it to be purple, not red. And another person's like, well, green. <laughs> Fuck you, green. <laughs> Everything, everyone thinks they have the right yeah, exactly. answer as well. So the demand is 
several fold. I mean, that the first part of it is that, right? So you have the community sort of chattering and, and making comments and saying things. And it's that's almost like a uh, like an invisible force field where they, they're talking and you're looking, you're seeing what they're saying, but you're like looking beneath the surface and figuring out how, like, oh, okay, I understand what the actual problem is. This is what they think the problem is. Here's mm-hmm. the actual problem. So there's demand in that way. Then there's direct demand where you have people hitting you up saying, how did you do this? Like, I listened to song number seven at two minutes and 30 seconds, and you did this thing, and how did you do that? So that was a, a level of demand. And then I think the final thing was just me being so deep in the production process and doing it so many times and working on so many songs and working with the tools that were at my disposal and being like, ah, oh, it's missing this one thing. If it just did this thing this way, my life would be so much better. And I think a lot of people shared the, I, I think I knew that a lot of people shared the same thing because you could see like when a product would come out and maybe Pod Farm is a pretty decent example, you kind of come across the same topic of conversation like well the EQ does this and it's weird and I don't like that and you see somebody else say it and then another person say it and another person say it and you're like oh I could if I could just make pod farm a little better and improve the EQ and then do this thing a little differently maybe that would be really awesome or like maybe if I could make something similar to pod farm but it could also load you know impulse responses and those kinds of things so yeah that's that's basically how Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy enhanced to find out more. I think that's a really, really important thing you just said. The fact that you were working in the field a lot, so you had a personal connection to what was missing. And that's parallel to where 
the way I saw URM going and this nail the mix thing and all that was based on having done a lot of work in the field and having a feel for what's missing. Like you could see the next step. And the, uh, the reason I'm pointing this out is because I'm sure you get hit up all the time with people's ideas or they, and I don't mean your business partners. I mean, like online, you get, you probably get solicited a lot to like go in on somebody's venture or hear out somebody's venture and give them advice, or you just see people trying things. And in general, it's all bullshit. And in general, people are just copying other people, usually badly. And I think that it's because they're not doing those things that we just talked about. They're not actually sitting there working their ass off in the field and really thinking what's missing. Like what could really help me do my job better? Like what what is it that's not ideal about how this works? And then providing that. Um more so they're just seeing, well that person was successful with that. I want to do that too. Which is not necessarily the most innovative way to go about doing things. So I think that that's also a way to not really understand the demands of the market because by the time that you figure out how to copy somebody else, the market will probably have shifted some. And so you're trying to do what they were doing two years ago. Um, whereas if you're in the field actually busting ass all the time and organically learning what doesn't work and what could make your life better, it makes so much more sense that you're going to arrive to that conclusion sooner and then create something that actually will solve problems for people. You've got to get dirty, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the people who um, try to <laughs> solve all your non-existent problems <laughs> uh, from, a, from afar are just simply making commentary, and it's not necessarily something that you always should listen to. Now, I do believe that the customer's feedback and critique is very important. Of course. Um, yeah, so you always pay attention to that, um, and you definitely listen, but it doesn't mean that you should always act on that. But uh, again, roles. So it's like, I need that. I need people, not only do I need to know about the demand and need to know um, what other people you know are struggling with in the production process, so I also need those critical customers that uh, look at the software objectively or even subjectively and make commentary about how it can be better. And those those kinds of things also drive the company forward. So um, as long as they're not being haters, because I think that's, we established <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's not um, fruitful. <laughs> Where do you draw the line? And I, th I think that this relates to mixers too, because, you know, mixers have to deal with mix notes. Now, where do you draw the line? Like, where is it a productive, helpful thing versus just some narcissistic request that's not actually going to make anything better? Just make it different. Where, where do you draw the line? Uh, that's tough. I mean, I think I, it's, you need discretion and you need to. You said discretion? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You need to put a little bit of thought into that because you, you could be hearing someone could be very loud and they could be very hateful, but they could actually be saying something important. And, and so you kind of have to, 
like that's the interesting thing too about like you know starting this business with you and and how over the years we've had certain customers um you know they would say things like you know maybe they're upset about something um and i get it you know you're upset right now but underneath that anger there is a problem yeah because if everything was perfect, you would you wouldn't be upset. Sometimes they're right. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, even if you're being hateful, you're right about something, and so I want to get to that. I want to get to that place. So I think that's where um, I don't know if I necessarily draw the line, but I think it's it's all about presentation. Like, there's a nice way to say that something is broken or or that you're mad about something, um, and so that's that's an interesting thing. But if you're level-headed and you're down to earth and you look at uh, conflict as uh, a problem that just needs solving, it's a puzzle and you got to figure out how to put it together, then you you get along pretty well. And I think that's where, you know, not no one's perfect. I definitely have my moments where I, I, I lose it, but I try to keep that and maintain that composure when I'm approaching um at least people online, because that's that's the easiest place to get heated. <laughs> and the stupidest place. Right, yeah. But it's I'm looking at it very um pragmatically and from an objective standpoint, because I wanna I wanna create the, the, the puzzle or solve the puzzle. I wanna create the solution and not be talking and meddling in the um uh, the surface level of the conflict or the, the situation. Well what you just said is true for mixed notes too. Yeah, I know that a lot of producers have their blood pressure spike when they get mixed notes back. And shit, man, I know that I'm guilty of it too at times. Sometimes I I loved it, but there were other times where my blood pressure would spike. And I know that this happens to every mixer producer. I feel like any mixer who says that they never get annoyed by mixed notes is full of shit. That or they're a psychopath. Or they have some like way of dealing with the that stress. Yeah. Well, that third option right there, I think, is that most mixers that are successful do have a way of dealing with it. Man, I've seen this in enough people to know that this is pretty widespread, that the initial reaction, like if we weren't capable of controlling our emotions or channeling them or whatever, the initial reaction would be fuck you um, to mix notes a lot of the time, which is not good because even if the person has no technical knowledge of recording and deliver something real convoluted in the form of a mix note, oftentimes they're right. <laughs> That's a thing. Oftentimes they are right. And sometimes the non-technical folk that have hired you, they know what sounds good and know what doesn't sound good. They may just not know how to communicate it in your language, or you might be coming off a 12-hour day and you don't want to hear about it and you worked really hard on this one thing and just the thought of then having to redo it, you know, when you're in a weakened, tired state is not is not fun. And so that doesn't mean that they're wrong, though. <laughs> and just like you said, just like with these hateful commenters sometimes or, you know, some of the stranger things that we see or some of the more negative things we see, sometimes they are right. <laughs> so, so they're just pissed. It happens. Yeah, yeah. So so for anyone who, like if you're a mixing engineer and you're listening to this episode right now and you're dealing with someone that is being sort of maybe difficult to deal with, like a band member is being sort of hateful to you or maybe they're just being sort of like, 
loud about some kind of problem. Uh, just know that that comes from something, from somewhere. It's not just, I mean, yeah, the dude's being a dick. Um, but deep down, there's something that triggered or sparked that guy being a dick. Or maybe they're just being annoying um, about something. They won't let it go. They're being nice, but they won't let it go. I remember I, I was the client once on a record, and I didn't like the snare, but I was nowhere near as good as the person mixing it. And so I wasn't about to tell him how to do his job because... He's way better than me, but I didn't like the snare at all. And so I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to start giving him technical advice or something. Like, I felt like that would be disrespectful because I'm not trying to tell this guy how to do his job. But as the client, as the dude paying for it, I do need to say, I really don't like this snare. I don't think it's right. It's not what we were going for. It sounds too mechanical. We're going for something roomier, more natural, where you can really hear the the inflections and the intricacies and the ghost notes sound like ghost notes. And this sounds like a cannon and sounds like an awesome cannon, but it sounds like a cannon. And it's just not right. And I don't want to tell you how to fix it. And then the dude fixed it, kind of. And it still wasn't that good. So what am I supposed to do? You know, it's it's weird. It can. So I'm sure he thought I was being an asshole. And I'm sure he thought I was being annoying. And I'm sure he thought I was being a difficult client. But on my end, I just thought he wasn't getting a good sounding snare. And it was important. Yeah, and I. that's great, though, because I think your presentation was good. Like that, that's my point is that if you're going to take the time to hate on something, put a presentation behind it, make your argument make sense, be logical, express why something is wrong and tell me that, you know, don't just be like, no, that's dumb or that doesn't work or that doesn't make sense or I don't like it. Like, why? <laughs> you know, going back to roles and talking about contribution, that's how haters can actually contribute to the market and the industry. So if it's like, you know, if we're talking about racing and you say, oh, this guy sucks, like, well, why? Like, what is it that makes him suck? What's your, you know, grand idea about it? Or, you know, going to recording, like that producer, his mixes are shitty. Well, you might think his mixes are shitty because all of his guitar tones are dark and you like bright guitar tones, but then there's a person who is the opposite of that. So if you don't present your position and perspective, then your comments are a waste of time. Yeah, because you don't even know what's behind them. For instance, since we've got Bring Me the Horizon on this month, July 2019, because who knows when you're listening to this, great listener, you could be listening to this in 2040. So July 2019, we've got Bring Me the Horizon on. And of course, in the on the front-facing side, meaning not in our private group, but like on the ads, there's some people who talking shit, like they always do, but they're talking about their haircuts from 2008. So it's like, well, okay, <laughs> not even going to bother to respond to that because um, it's stupid because, okay, that's what you're going to hate on? A band's haircuts from a different era and time? That's all you got? Okay. I mean, we're, we're here to teach you how to mix, so... We're not a fashion school, so that 
comment is kind of <laughs> kind of irrelevant to us. Like, well, yeah, and I wonder if that's because they don't have anything else to say. And I think about that a lot because I'm like, if you're someone like us, where we think about every like every time we do something, like say we're doing an ad, we're creating a product, you know, we're working on a web page, whatever, we're approaching it from all these different angles and perspectives and thinking about all these different things. And it's like, we've solved all the problems to the point where the only thing left is for you to come in and make fun (laughs) of the dude's hair. Right? Like the service is great. The price is great. The value is amazing. What we're doing is, is purposeful and important, you know, so there's nothing else to complain about except for that. And I think that might be why sometimes there are those kinds of comments on on those things because there's nothing else to hate on. Well, also, it kind of goes back to what, and I think you're right, but it also goes back to what we were saying before that a lot of people are just lurkers, right? So a lot of people with the best of intentions don't really post on this kind of stuff. And you have a certain vocal minority who just have this thing in them where they need to post things that hurt people online. And I don't know what it is in them that makes them this way. And it's kind of sad, but they just have this thing where there's nothing. Why are you talking about the dude's hair? Why the fuck do you care about a band's haircut in 2008? Seriously, dude, it's 2019. Like, why do you care about this? Like, for real. I mean, I get it if you don't like their haircuts. Actually, I was not a fan of seeing haircuts back in 2008, but I have not thought about it since 2008. Why do you care about their haircuts? And why do you care about it enough to comment on a mixing schools page. And once you find the answer to that, you may start improving your life to where you don't feel the need to waste your time leaving that kind of bullshit on people's pages because that's got to be coming from somewhere. (laughs) Like, that doesn't just... You don't... Yeah, I mean... I've never gotten the urge. Like, I've never seen, like, a commercial for something from the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s left a comment, like, talking shit about the way they look or something. Who cares? It's a different era. (laughs) Yeah. I, I have to believe that some part of it is that they are on a mission to correct the universe. It's like... So you're ascribing a nobility to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's their own like internal nobility because, I mean, I don't think it's shared with society, but it's like, I'm on a mission. No, you should not be wearing <laughs> pants that tight and you should not be putting your hair this way. It doesn't look good. It's because I think so. Like, you know, so I think... <laughs> I don't know why people... I, well, I guess... I guess I kind of know why, because it's kind of like when you're in high school, you you really are trying so hard to express yourself. You you want to wear clothes, you want to fit in with a certain crowd. I remember going to school with you know corn shirts and jinko jeans, and and then you've got the people at school that don't dress that way, and they're like making fun of you because you're dressing really weird, but you're trying to express yourself and you're trying to fit in, and so there's kind of a, a I think some of these haters are on the a mission to sort of correct the universe in a way that they see fit like i we shouldn't have these baggy jeans you know or whatever so it's so so you're saying that basically because a lot of these people are not in high school a lot of them are like in their late 20s and 30s sometimes 40s so you're saying that these are unresolved high school 
issues. It's somewhere. Maybe it didn't come from high school, but it's it started somewhere, and it it probably did come from high school. But it could. I mean, very well. Back. Definitely, what uh, probably evolves too comes from starts in high yeah. school, then evolves throughout you know through your age and whatnot. If you look at society with like a chip on your shoulder, or you're paranoid all the time, or you think that like everyone's out to get you then you sort of formulate a perfect world in your own mind or a perfect universe, and then anything that goes against that, you feel like you have to speak out about it because you want to make the universe the way that you see it. And I think that uh, part of you know what I've gone through is a maturity where realizing that I don't know all the answers to everything and my opinion only is my opinion. So sometimes I share it and sometimes I don't. And I try to share it when it's a positive um, you know, situation. So... I think that's part of the explanation for that is that those those people are just so desperate to fix stuff that's not really broken, but it is broken to them. <laughs> you know, that could be either dangerous or really positive because, you know, what's interesting, where's the line? Because we, what we do as people who create things, especially business and like more so in business than in art because in art art's more about self-expression but in business we're I guess you know when I was writing music I wasn't trying to solve a problem I was trying to scratch a creative itch expression but in business I am trying to solve problems because of something I see that's either wrong in the world (laughs) um, or not existing yet in the world that I feel needs to exist. And I feel strongly enough <laughs> to where I would quit my job and like put my faith into this thing yeah. because I feel that strongly. So where's the line? Because <laughs> like when you're saying that, it's like, yeah, I think you're right, but that sounds like us. I know. And that's, that's the beauty of this conversation. <laughs> and I want people to realize that that's why it's, it's just so amazing. I don't know what else to say about it. It's a very amazing thing because the person that's on the other end of that hateful comment is doing the exact same thing that we're doing, except I think we're a little bit more constructive about it. But it's still coming from that same emotion. Something's wrong. I want to fix it. I want to change it. I'm going to take this problem and you know, destroy it or make it, you know, improve it, whatever is that's the same exact motive that's coming from that person who is making fun of the dude with the haircut. (laughs) This might sound a little controversial, but I've always thought that the people that are the most broken have the most uh, potential, like broken in terms of things that they did to themselves. Like, I think that, for instance, if someone has the ability to become a drug addict or gain a bunch of weight or like gamble a huge fortune away. They actually have some of the most potential out of anybody because all of those things take a lot of work, like a lot of dedication. It sounds funny, I know, but I'm completely serious and I'm not trying to make light of bad things. But what I'm saying is that I think people are redeemable um, and that with things like that, like where you have this sense of justice and you want to fix something in the world or you have this energy for doing something, but somehow you got fucked up and you turned it on yourself um, and you've done all negative things. Well, you still are creating something in the world. It just might not be a good thing, but that means you have the ability to create, which If you just step aside from the value judgment of this is good 
or this is bad, or you're hurting yourself or whatever, or you're hurting other people. If you just take that out of the equation and you realize you are actually doing something in this world, you're creating something, you have that ability, you feel something strongly enough to commit yourself and stick with it long enough to really fuck things up. Well, you know, if you took that same amount of energy and put it towards something positive, you could probably do something amazing with yourself. And so maybe there is hope for all these <laughs> for all these haters. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, maybe not the line, but I guess the key difference is that if you take that energy and apply it towards something constructive, for example, creating a platform and a community where people can thrive in the audio production world, then I feel like you're, you're doing something objectively um, positive. Like it's not subjective anymore. You created something that is inherently positive. And that's the, that's the cliche thing, right? Take your hate and turn it into positive energy or whatever people say all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing though. <laughs> yeah. But it's like if you learn how to harness that and do it properly, it's very, very powerful. And so I think like uh, sometimes that can come from, it can be driven by competitive nature. Like you see, you know, I see obviously there's a plethora of uh, software companies out there making audio plugins. So a lot of what they do can drive my, you know, competitive spirit and make me want to do something better or something a little different or solve a problem in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a good thing, you know? I think you need to have the balance. It's all about balance. I think this whole episode is about balance. It's like you, all the roles. You, you need a competitor. You need someone smarter than you. You need someone that's not as smart as you. You need people who are willing to teach. You need people who want to learn. You need all of these different roles to make all of this this fucking stuff work. And I think, you know, in audio, it's the same way. Like a, a song, the chords play their role and the lead melody plays its role and then the producer plays his role and the editor and the engineer play their role and, and the band has their role and the manager has the role and the record label. And <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing when you start to understand how nothing is better than anything else and everything is required in, in order for it to work. If there was any missing piece, there would be an imbalance and that imbalance would either destroy, eventually destroy itself or be something not worthwhile. Exactly. And it's it's funny that you brought up the competition aspect because I think that our caveman DNA wants us to destroy, right? You see a competing tribe on the land you want, um, you know, they've got the watering hole, fucking kill them. You know, that's so I think we have that destructive nature to us. It's in us. It's in the DNA. Uh, however, we are capable of taking that impulse and rather than being like, I'm going to destroy that motherfucker, I'm going to create something that's even better uh, and build my own watering hole. Uh, the end. I'm going to build the best fucking water hole ever and uh, people will just come to me. And it's, I think the key here is that we have finite time, right? So what are you going to spend your energy on? You're going to spend it on destroying things or creating things? Because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you could try to do both, but destroying things takes a lot of energy. There isn't necessarily a net positive out of that. Usually, in fact, when you try to go destructive, you end up being the one that uh, 
that suffers the most, or at least you suffer so much that it wasn't worth it. Whereas that same amount of energy could go towards creation, and then you don't need to worry about what was causing you the the grief anymore if you created something that solved the problem for you and for other people. Yeah. So it can be a beautiful thing. It is. Creation, positivity, (laughs) that's impact. So you can have, you know, positive impact, you can have negative impact. And I think, you know, arguably the positive impact is the right thing to do or the better or the best thing. But, you know, the the positivity doesn't exist without negativity either. It's like, you know, there's there's no gain without pain. So that's another interesting idea. But I I think the time, the part about time is really, really important because time is the one thing that no one can do anything about. You can't reverse it. You can't slow it down. You can't speed it up. You can't change it. So that's why you have to choose creation because destruction is a waste of your time due to how, like if you do something positive, like the only thing that can come out of it is positivity. And at least you used your time to do something that has like sort of a, maybe not necessarily a noble um, cause, but at least you did something that tried to improve or tried to, you you contributed, I guess is what uh, I'm trying to say. Like, Well, it doesn't necessarily have to have noble origins. It can come from the origin of the, I want to kill that motherfucker who's competing against me, like that impulse that we have. You can make the choice to stop that from going forward and redirect that energy um, because that energy is there. That's the thing. That energy is there. Like we are wired a certain way. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's We have that because we want to survive. Yeah, they call it the alligator brain. If anyone ever wants to look into that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's ancient. Yeah, it's the ancient brain, the alligator brain. But it's, I think, I guess the um, the difference between someone who is like a high achiever or uh, someone who's very successful or whatever, and someone who hasn't done much, hasn't contributed much, or tried to but just didn't really do much is the fact that they were able to channel the all kinds of the different levels of energy, the the sort of caveman thing you were talking about, but then also recognizing time as a very important variable and factor and and doing something that either compresses time in the sense of per- perception or saves time or saves pain. So this is like this is where you get into marketing because there's only like five things that people want or that I guess people need or whatever. So it's like people want to escape pain or avoid pain. They want to, um, I can't remember how it goes. Do you know, you know what I'm talking about? Increase pleasure. Right. So in marketing, you learn when you learn about marketing and this, and the reason I, I like to talk about marketing because I want people listening to this episode to realize that they are a marketer when they're in the studio. You're trying to sell the band on either an idea a way of doing the record, uh, you know, you're trying to get people to agree that they should work with this guy or that guy, like whatever decisions you're making, um, you and you need people to go along with those decisions. You're a marketer. You have to figure out how to escape pain and how to increase pleasure and how to do this and this and this and this. And so it's a very important skill. So I think like people, you know, like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, these you know mega rich people have taken. A certain approach to 
you know, solving the market's problems by looking at the time and using that those different levels of energy and creating amazing platforms and communities and solutions and things like that. And so as a producer, you can do the same thing in your own market, in your own sort of world, your own like with your own relationships and your with your clients and things like that. And the thing that gets scary about it is that once you understand how it works psychologically, it's it can be used as a weapon. And so that's when you have to practice, you have to be ethical with the with in your practice of of utilizing that uh, that skill and use, utilizing your ability to yeah we we know of uh, this one I'm not going to mention names uh, this one producer who uh, is mega mega famous actually who's known for being this major manipulator who understands I'm sure you know who I'm talking about who understands human psychology but uses it to pit bands against each other in this weird way to like get his agenda across. It's really exactly. weird. Yeah. Yeah. But people don't people don't end up going back or the bands end up breaking up. It ends up really, really bad. But he's had a lot of success. So people put up with it. But that dude uses it as a weapon. And even though he's had some wins, I don't think he's winning in the end because everyone wants to get away from him. Uh and everyone reports a bad time. Like they don't want to go back. They don't want to have anything to do with him. Yeah. Had great people working for him who just jumped ship. And uh and yeah, that's that's what happens when you use these things as a weapon. Um it might work. It might work in the moment. Uh like it, tactically. The weapon can be a good thing though. Yeah. And that's where that's where I'm talk about the ethics and the nature of the ethical like the way you approach it ethically cuz like um I wish I had a better analogy, but this is the one that comes to mind. So let's imagine you have a friend and they're a drug addict and they're addicted to drugs and it's killing them. Um, if you're good at marketing, you can literally talk that person out of doing drugs because you will figure out how to psychologically manipulate them to not do it anymore. And that's when you're using it, you're using that manipulation and that psychology as a weapon for good because you're going to improve that person's life by taking them away from drugs. If you are a producer and you know the right thing to do for this album, you've got a band, they want to go heavy, and you know from the bottom of your heart and from inside out, you know that it's just the wrong fucking thing to do on the album because it, it's going to flop, or maybe it's the vice versa, that it's a super heavy band and now they want to start singing all of a sudden and they want to do these like happy choruses and things, and you, you just know, like, nope, that's not going to be the right thing. And if you're right, then... I think it's ethical that you manipulate the band to understand. Maybe manipulation is a strong word. Maybe we shouldn't be using that word. But you get the band to see the light and to come to the same conclusion as you that the right thing to do is X. Mm -hmm. And you use your marketing and psychology skills to get to that point. So I think it's very tricky because you can definitely use it to do, You can let's say you have your own agenda like we were talking about, you could definitely use the same exact power to get people to do your agenda. And thusly, you could have, you know, your motives could be whack. <laughs> so, yeah, it, one comment about the drug thing. So I think that that's, that's an interesting one because addiction is a, is a physical dependency as much as it's a mental thing. And so even if, you know, you can't fix somebody for them. Uh, but 
if all you do is convince them to get help, then you've done a you've done an amazing thing. If you used your ability to to convince to get your drug addict addicted friend to go to rehab and seek professional help, then you've used the powers for good. And manipulate is a word with a bad connotation. So I, I don't want to sit here and argue for why. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. People just associate it as bad. But the moral of the story is that sometimes people don't know what's better for them. Sometimes they don't know how to fix a situation. And sometimes they want to go about it the wrong way. Sometimes they're just plain wrong. And you have the foresight or you have the expertise or you're just right. And so everyone's going to benefit from your rightness on this. And you're going to be doing everybody beyond a favor by having your idea be put into uh, put into action, um, made real life. This is where I think the time comes in because you might also not have time to present it. Yeah, the way the the way that it needs to be presented to make everyone understand that your plan is the right plan. This is the same problem that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos ran into, and Mark Zuckerberg. They had limited time to make people understand the problem or the solution, um, either one or both. And so all they could do is just drive as fast as possible towards the utopian universe that they saw on the other end of the <laughs> tunnel with with what the work that they were going to do and what that was going to create. And so those are the people with vision. And so that's what I think is so important about a producer is that they have a vision and they nece- not necessarily have enough time to get everyone to uh, bask in the vision. And so they have to use marketing and psychology to break the time barrier to get to that vision and make it a reality before anyone else realizes, oh my gosh, you're a genius, you were right. This was exactly what we needed to do. And so that's like the that's where the savants come in because there's some people who are very brilliant at that dance. They're very capable of making everyone around them see the light quick or they're very capable of dancing around that to the point where by the time we arrive at our destination, we we don't, you know, we look back and go, oh, wow, how did we get here? And so I think, you know, that's what makes, that's the difference between a, an amazing producer and uh, just a, a, a workhorse producer is that somebody that can come in and and use a variety of skills, the the, uh, the psychology, the marketing and the, um, the vision and all those things and create a, a work of art that is highly regarded and sells tons of copies and blah, 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 blah. I agree with you. And that time compression, and this is a topic for another day because I'm going to have to, uh, going to have to end this. Um, but the other time compression, uh, tactic that they use very effectively, which, you know, you'll see why I'm saying, going to say that this is a topic for another day is delegation too. So they compress the time through strategies to, I guess, convince people quickly or to, you know, to get their point across quickly. And they delegate properly so that they're not wasting their time on things they don't need to be doing. And therefore they compress time. But uh, Joey, I got to go. I got to say thank you so much for coming back on. It's been awesome having you on again. It's been great to be back. And I hope people, 
I feel like this episode is going to be awesome for a lot of people, and I hope people appreciate it. So I think so, too. I hope to have you back in less than 100 episodes. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.